Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. My breeding bird survey season is over. It is finito. And yes, I know talking about your BBS is akin to talking about your fantasy football team and that it's not nearly as interesting to other people as it was to you. But you're going to have to hear me out for at least a couple minutes here. Last week, I finished my last of three survey routes and they were slightly below average, which seems par for the course with what a lot of people are saying about this spring slash early summer, but not so slightly as to be concerning. I attribute it to running them later in the period than I have in the past. Turns out that that matters a fair bit. Two were in the midst of the weird, wet, cold spring we've had here in the Southeast, and the last was in the full bore attic fan summer. I bring them up because I talked a little last year about using Merlin on the route and my feeling about whether that is entirely kosher and my desire, I guess, for a little bit of guidance from Patuxet Research Lab, the USGS. This year, they did, in fact, issue a statement affirming that it is not okay. No Merlin on BBS routes, which is just as well. But now I'm sort of in this unique situation to see whether Merlin made a significant impact on the results for my counts as I had a Merlin year kind of sandwiched between two non-Merlin years. What an opportunity, right? Uh, I don't know about you, but I keep detailed notes of my BBS routes from year to year. And for one route, the Merlin year was one species lower than the non-Merlin year previous and lower again by one this year. Inconclusive, I guess. For the second route, it was exactly the same as the year before and two species lower this year, which could also be time of year. And for the third, the Merlin year was significantly higher than the years on either side, but the species that made up the difference weren't what I thought of as species that Merlin is really going to help you for. They were both vultures, which I, I don't get every year, and red-tailed hawk and common raven and whippoorwill, which you know I don't need Merlin for. Um, it turned out it was just one of those days where you just hit on everything. You know what that's like. Even without Merlin, though, I did add one new species to a route that had been run on and off since 1976, and it was... Great egret, a species that has undoubtedly expanded its breeding range over the last 45 years, and also one that probably benefited from a later date. So the conclusion, eh, inconclusive. Merlin remains an amazing tool. My breeding bird surveys remain interesting, perhaps only to me. But let's move on to the show itself. They call it bird watching, but bird listening is just as, if not more, important, which is part of the reason that age-related hearing loss can be so frustrating for older birders and worrisome for those still young. It comes for us all eventually, but recordist Lang Elliott offers a solution of sorts. His new app, Hear Birds Again, promises to allow you to do just that. He talks about it and his own journey of loss and discovery after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the beginning of July 2023. 
Before there were limpkins, there were neotropic cormorants. Many of us remember a time, as not so much more than five years ago, when this was the species seen expanding rapidly across the continent. And while they did sputter out after a little while, there are still a few states and provinces where sightings of neotrops are noteworthy, including North Dakota, which saw its first record of neotropic cormorant photographed in Dickey County, just over the border from South Dakota, which has had about a dozen records in the last decade or so. By my count, this leaves eight states in the lower 48 still without this species, mostly on the upper corners, but also, surprisingly, West Virginia. West Virginia, incidentally, has one of the weirdest bird lists in the ABA area. No neotropic cormorant, obviously, but yes, great knot and kelp gull. Go figure. This week, a low-hanging fruit was finally obtained with an Arctic turn was seen in Taylor County. That was a first record. West Virginia's strange list likely has to do with its topography. The state is almost entirely mountainous and has very few large reservoirs to attract birds like Arctic turn, which almost certainly fly over the state annually, but rarely stop over. Another turn of note comes from Michigan, where a white-winged turn at Point Mui in Monroe County represents a first of this Eurasian vagrant for that state. White-winged turn is a somewhat regular vagrant on the East Coast and has, in fact, come very, very close to Michigan before, just barely on the Ontario side of the St. Clair River in 1991. This is the second of the summer in the ABA area. There was a white-winged turn in Nassau County, New York, just last month. And Nevada's first record of varied bunting was documented in Clark County, where a male unfortunately struck a residential window. That individual was taken to a rehabilitation clinic where it recovered after a couple days and was released in the area. It has not been seen since. Those are the recent highlights. For the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and at ABA Community. It is an inevitability that as a birder ages, they lose the ability to hear some birds, particularly those with high-pitched songs and calls. It is a struggle that nature recordist Lang Elliott has dealt with for decades, but he offers, with the help of modern technology, a solution of sorts, a way for the nature lover to turn back the clock on their ears. It's called Hear Birds Again, and Lang is here to talk about it. He's also written an article introducing this product in the July 2023 issue of Birding Magazine. And I should also point out that Lang was one of the very first guests I ever hosted on the American Birding Podcast some 250-odd episodes ago. Um, welcome back, Lang. It's, it's good to see you again. And good to see you, Nate. So can you talk a little about your own struggles with hearing loss and how that has affected your, your birding and your nature experiences? Well, sure. I um, lost my high pitches when I was like around eight, eight or nine years old, I can't remember the exact year, but I was out with a friend and we were tossing cherry bombs, um, which are seasonally a, appropriate warning, uh, right? For, which are a sure. type of firecracker, sort of a big firecracker. And uh, as a kid, we were fascinated by uh, these things because we would blow things up. We were quite destructive. <laughs> and on this occasion, I was with my neighbor, uh, Skip Brett. And um, we were trying to blow up a squirrel's nest in an oak tree. <laughs> we didn't know if there was a squirrel in it or not, but I guess it didn't matter to us at the time. So we would light a, a cherry bomb and let the fuse burn down about halfway and then throw it up in the tree so that it would blow up as it flew by the squirrel's nest. Mm -hmm. And uh, we weren't having much luck, but uh, at, at one instant, 
when I had my back turned, he threw one up there and it hit a limb and came straight back. And it, uh, and it was coming back toward me. So he jumped back and he said, watch out, Lang. And I turn around, but the cherry bomb blew up right on top of my head. Mm-hmm. And it actually burnt the top of my head and uh, left me with ringing ears and unable to hear much of anything for a while. Um, my parents took me to an audiologist. And uh, at that point, I was getting some of my hearing back. I could hear voices again, but it had all this ringing. And uh, so they tested me and said, well, all I was really told was, well, you know, your hearing's coming back. And uh, but we we advise you not to join any rock bands as you get older. (laughs) That was all I was told. But what had actually happened is it blew out a bunch of my high pitches Mm -hmm. because there's a, a the area, the frequency at which you have the most sensitive hearing is actually around thirty five hundred hertz, three thousand five hundred cycles per second. And uh, and the area around that. So that when you're in a traumatic, loud noise kind of uh, incident, that's the area that takes the most damage. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, that's also the area where a lot of birds sing. Yeah, not something you realized at eight years old. but Yeah, I had no no idea. But that's that sensitive areas where a lot of birds happen to sing. So someone with normal, youthful hearing is really set up quite well to detect uh, songbirds. The average mm-hmm. songs of songbirds is around 3,500 cycles, thereabouts, 3,000 to 4,000. And um, so it just took that whole area out. And then subsequently, uh, I got into pistols shooting. And uh, <laughs> I acquired this pistol. This when I was a little older. I was more like 14 or 13, 14, 15 in there. And I'd go out and target shoot until my ears were ringing like crazy. And then I would quit because it'd get painful. And little did I know all that ringing is just sort of like neurons blitzing out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, permanently destroying, making my situation even worse. But no one around me, this was in central Missouri back in, I was born in 48, so 58, you know, the late 1950s, early mm-hmm. 1960s, there was no one to tell me you know, you're, you, you really ought to wear ear protection <laughs> right, yeah, or anything. Wrong, yeah. My parents, no one said a thing. And I was, through that entire period, still able to understand speech as I still can. Mm-hmm. I don't hear the high part of it, but I hear enough of it yeah. that I've been quite good at getting along and talking to people, except in noisy situations. So I had no idea that I had this deficit. Uh, I noticed little things along the way. I Like when I was in went to University of Missouri, uh, I took a herpetology course, and I would go out with people looking for lizards and things, and one of my friends was really great at, at hearing fence lizards running in the leaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was always spotting these fence lizards, and I noticed, like, I had no idea how he was spotting so many of them, and I had to ask him, you know, I said, how in the world did you know it's over there? And he goes, well, I can hear it rustling in the leaves. And I thought, wow, does he have good hearing? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and later, I, I remember I had a, um, a friend. I was actually studied for a while as a graduate student at University of Maryland, flying squirrels. And they oh, yeah. emit these really yeah. high sounds. Mm-hmm. 
And I found out from someone living in my household, I had these summon cages, actually, uh, that at night they would do this chirping and I wasn't hearing it <laughs> no at idea. all. Huh. You know, but this other person now, so goes, it's like, you know, well, all night long, it, it goes into these bouts of chirping. I thought, wow, that person has great hearing. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't until at the University of Maryland that I um, uh, took a course in animal behavior. Um, and it was co-taught by, by about four different people. And one of the uh, people that was the teacher was Gene Morton, who was with the Smithsonian Institution, a professor who studied bird communication. Uh, so he would take us on field trips, like on campus, the class, and we would go out and find birds. There was a woodlot. And he was noticing things, you know, and I, I wasn't hearing him. But a lot of it, he said, oh, well, it's pretty far away and this mm -hmm. or that. But on one occasion, I visited him at his home down on the Severn River outside, of, uh, well, out over near Annapolis, Maryland. And uh, we were walking on his property, and he goes, oh, my gosh, over on that hillside, a worm-eating warbler, the first that he had heard on his property. And he said, do you hear it? And he would point when it would sing, and I would shake my head, no, I don't hear it. He goes, well, you probably do hear it, but, you know, we'll get closer. So we got closer and closer until we're standing under the tree looking at the warbler, and all I would see is it would just open its mouth and hmm. singing the high, it's hard out, and I wasn't hearing a thing. I didn't yeah. hear it at all, even at, at a close distance. So he said, oh, my God, you need to get your hearing tested, which I did. And at that point, found out that I was missing all these mm -hmm. frequencies, all the high frequencies. I was quite profoundly uh, deaf, like above 3,000 hertz at that point. By 3,500, you know, I wasn't hearing anything unless it was hugely loud or very, very, very close. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a, um, a real shock to my system because at that point I was imagining myself, I was learning a lot of natural history because I was working with people that did a lot of field work, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I was like, oh, I'm training, I'm going to be really good at like everything, everything yeah. out there, <laughs> plants and animals alike, and of course the birds, only to discover that I was just missing this huge area. I even, I owned a Ewer tape recorder. That's of the fame of Nixon fame. The Nixon tapes oh, were okay. on yeah. Ewer. And uh, I had actually bought it to sound record frogs back when I was an undergrad. And, uh, and I could hear most frogs. So I didn't, you right. know, I didn't, huh, they, okay. they didn't tell me that I had this problem. It's the birds that did. I went into a woodlot with my Ewer uh, there in, in Maryland. I forget the name of the park, but it was uh, early one morning and it was spring. And I let the tape roll on at the fastest speed, which was seven and a half inches per second, I remember. And there weren't hardly any birds singing in the forest, as near as I could tell. But I let it roll for several minutes and then I played it back at half speed. And that lowers the pitch in mm -hmm. half. Mm -hmm. It also stretches it. So a couple of minutes took me four minutes to listen to. But what I instantly discovered as I played it back right out there in the field is that all these birds were singing that I was unaware were even there. Yeah. You know, and I, 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 at that point, I didn't know what the birds were because I didn't know birds very well. But it's like I was shocked. You know, there's all this stuff going on 
I sort of had the idea. I already knew there was something a little wrong, but I thought I was hearing most of it. Mm -hmm. Instead, I discovered I'm missing most of it by far. Yeah. <laughs> so that was uh, a real downer. Uh, but I, it sort of started this cre crusade to find a solution because, right. well, if I slow down the recorder, then I hear them. Right. They're there. You know, yeah. that was just, there it is. Uh, if you lower the pitch, my hearing is good up to a certain point. I can hear these birds. So I went out and looked around in the world. Uh, and how I did that back then before the internet, I don't know. But I sort of <laughs> surveyed what was out there, whatever way we used to do that. And the only I couldn't discover any device that would do the pitch shifting. Right. But I did uh, run into a... Um, a device made for the music industry, which was a pitch shifter, but it was a, a large rack mount device. I don't yeah. know if you know what a rack mount is in yeah, the yeah. studio. They, they mount it in this metal rack and a uh, big kind of thing. And the guy who made that, Harold Bode, was a contemporary of Robert Moog, of the Moog synthesizer. Yeah. He's a lesser known person. Um, but this device, this Bode frequency shifter, uh, that was able to create harmonics and do various interesting things. It was fairly popular, you know, and he was well known in, in that circle of uh, inventors of these devices. Um, so I contacted him and said, well, um, you know, I have this problem and I see you make a frequency shifting device. Is there any possibility that you'd be interested in working with me to create something I could use so I could hear these birds. Right, something something you didn't have to mount in a rack because it's hard to, yeah. hard to drag that around in the woods. So uh, <laughs> he actually was interested. Uh, he was retired or semi-retired at that point. And he thought, well, this is really interesting. Uh, I went up to Buffalo, New York, which is where he lived. And we talked the whole thing over. And he says, I'll make you, I had to pay him, but not a huge amount, uh, to make me a portable version of his shifter mm -hmm. unfortunately it was still the rack mount <laughs> it was still a large device but uh, that i had to tote around but it had uh, uh rechargeable batteries inside and it was modified in various ways to optimize its utility to me and i i built my own binaural headset with mics at each ear using these hearing aid mics that i bought from a company called Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S, that still makes hearing aid mics. And so there was a mic at each ear on a headband, and then it would go into this large thing that I would be toting around mm -hmm. over my shoulder. And, um, and I was able to, it, it was a, what's called a heterodyne-based device. You, it, you have a pure tone. You mix the input. Uh, the birds singing birds or whatever with a pure loud pure tone and if you do that you generate what are called side bands mm -hmm. and one side band is the sum of the pure tone and the input the other is the difference between the pure tone and the okay. input and it's the difference that would be like if you had a pure tone at 4,000 and then a bird sings at 6,000 the difference is 2,000 mm -hmm. which I can hear so the, yeah. the device would would uh, repress the pure tone, but amplify the difference. Did you have to manually adjust? This yeah. To pick so up what I would do is there was a species? dial. Yeah. Yeah, and I would go out in the woods and I would just sort of turn it from 
starting around <laughs> three, three to up. eight, because most yeah. birds don't, very few birds sing above eight, but I'd like three to 10. Uh-huh. I would just sort of continually be turning this thing until I'd pick <laughs> up on something. Yeah. And then I would, uh, I was able to go, it was a, a binaural because they had a mic at each ear, and I was able to go find a bird. It was sort mm-hmm. of amazing, but it did weird things. It, um, like if you had a, if you think about it, let's say you have a, a tone at five. I had the tone set at 5,000 hertz or five kilohertz. And let's say a bird starts singing something that rises in pitch, like a prairie warbler, or um, uh, that would they would go like z z z z z z z going up. Mm-hmm. Then and and it starts, let's say at four. Then the difference between four and five is one kilohertz. But as it rises to five, it goes down to zero. Mm-hmm. The difference is none. And then as it rises up to six, there's one kilohertz. Right. So what so happens you is have to follow it. <laughs> what comes out sounds like this rather than z z z z z z sounds it goes z z z z z z z it goes down then it goes up and yeah. and so I would it would retain the quality but the frequency relationships would be all jumbled and all over yeah. the place so it let me hear the birds though and I could tune a bird in and then, of course I quickly discovered uh, since it would the tone i could go all the way up to 30 kilohertz mm-hmm. i could also tune in all these high insects and bats oh really oh cool so <laughs> well, i was sort of a super beyond, hearing beyond human yeah. hearing yeah, even regular human hearing yeah. beyond regular <laughs> uh so i had supercharged hearing on that's those right. high frequencies that's nice <laughs> and and i was able to hear these birds that i never had heard yeah at least in my conscious birding life um so that sort of got the whole thing started. But of course, it was impractical, this big sort of heavy right. thing I'm toting around. So as it developed, uh, I, I came to the university uh, or to Cornell University uh, later on. And I hooked up with an engineer here. And I was working at the Lab of Ornithology. So I thought, mm-hmm. well, I'm in a really good position uh, to create something that would really be helpful to birders. So we teamed up to create a digital device. That rather than doing being a header dine, it would be a, a straight pitch shifting, like mm-hmm. divide by two. So that right. way, even though the pitch the pitch would lower, but the, the frequency pattern, relationships stay the same, yeah. the pattern stayed the same. Yeah. So so the prairie warbler would rather than going z z z z z, it'd be z z z z z, just be lowered. And uh, so it was a brilliant device, and we built them and sold them. Um, I was just looking at the dates here. The when I had the first the Bode frequency shifter that was 1977, hmm. but now we're at 1991. Okay, coming out with the first SongFinder device, SongFinder, yeah. a digital bird song listening device, which we sold in various forms all the way until 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's quite a time span there. We sold a couple of thousand of them to. Almost uh, all, always to birders suffering yeah. from high frequency loss, but mostly due to aging. Yeah, as they get older, or people that had been in the war, so they had artillery, loud noises, and stuff, or people who had their ears ears damaged through rock concerts and <laughs> or, and are using really loud yeah. equipment or whatever. Did you did you come across people who were using kind of traditional hearing devices, hearing aids, and the like? Yeah, trying uh, and them. found them inadequate. Yeah, the, a lot of people, like there's 
traditional devices work on amplification mm-hmm. principle. Just make everything I mean, not harder. not one hundred percent because there are now a lot of tra- traditional, very expensive hearing aids that have pitch shifting components. Mm-hmm. But back then, it was just you know all amplification, mostly below four four kilohertz or four thousand right, cycles. So not, they not didn't even bother with the high. Yeah, um, and people would be disappointed because. Ampli- especially if their hearing loss was moderate to severe mm-hmm. at certain frequencies, because if you have severe hearing loss, it is true that if the sound gets loud enough, you'll hear it, but, but it has to be really loud. And when you do hear it, it's loud. It doesn't right. suddenly it, it, come yeah. in soft. It comes in really loud. <laughs> so it's jarring. Yeah. It's jarring. The, yeah. the, the, the common example of that would be like what you would see in movies is some, some old geezer who can't hear, who might have a, a funnel or something, sitting in a chair and somebody behind says, hi, Joe. And they don't respond. Keep, they keep getting closer. Hi, Joe. Hi, yeah. Joe. And then when they get right up and go, hi, Joe, the guy jumps out of his seat. <laughs> yes, it's coming out of nowhere. Because yeah. it's so loud. Yeah. And the same thing happens when, you're, when you've really lost your ability to hear sensitive high or, or soft high-pitched sounds. You can only hear super loud ones when you amplify the birds, let's say. If you get it loud enough so they finally hear it, it's, they hear it really, really loudly, yeah, and it yeah. feels like it's right next to them. <laughs> and they have no idea that it might be 50 feet away. Yeah. Uh, so it's not that you just amplify and then everything gets normal. It's, it's not. If you hear the bird through amplification, it can be unsettling at loud Mm-hmm. And you won't have any idea where it is. That's not so true if you have modest hearing loss. If your hearing loss is not w- what they would call moderate to severe, up to moderate, mm-hmm. um, then amplification can actually perform a miracle for you. It can bring mm-hmm. bring a lot of birds. You won't hear the soft, distant ones. Yeah. But when you do hear them, they won't sound like they're right next to you. And yeah. uh, it can be useful. Um, but our device, uh, the Song Finder at that point, utilized pitch shifting, which the idea is you take the high sounds you can't hear and you lower them to where your hearing is actually near normal. Right. Uh, so that you can appreciate soft sounds and have a really nice binaural perception of things in space. Yeah. Because one of the things that we don't really think about with birding, or don't always consciously think about with birding when we're thinking about birding by ear, is how much we use sounds to find where birds are too oh, and if no it's kidding. coming in super loud you know you okay you can hear it but you still have no idea where the bird is but where is you can't find it yeah yeah and also i mean with with moderate to severe loss it's rare that the two ears are the exactly the same yeah uh, so if yeah, you amplify you may start hearing it in one ear mm-hmm and not the other. And you think it's over there, but it really you're always thinking things are to the right or to the left. <laughs> yeah, and right. the only way you can figure out where it is to wheel yourself around. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's not to say that amplification doesn't work for everybody. Of course, it works for those that have modest loss and just need it, need some boost. Uh, but for the more severe loss, which is common, especially in older people, especially men over 50 or 60, um, amplification generally doesn't um, serve them that well. Mm-hmm. But a pitch-lowering component, they still may have good, reasonably good residual hearing up to 2,000 hertz or 2,500. 
And if that's the case, they're perfect candidate for pitch lowering mm -hmm. the higher things down where they sound still sound very pleasant and bird-like. Mm -hmm. um, and identifiable. And identifiable. Yeah, um, yeah to a large measure, uh, a lot of birds have a distinct singing pattern or quality mm -hmm. that you can pick up on, like, like a winter wren that sings high. When you pitch lower it, it may take a little bit to relearn it, but I mean, you can't mistake it right, the because of the pattern needed, and the yeah. rhythm. Or, or like I said, the prairie warbler, Z, 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 Z kind of thing, or a black-throated green going C, 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 Su, Z, mm -hmm. C, C, Su, Su, Z. You'll still hear that, and it's distinct. But there are, there are birds that are primarily identified because they are high-pitched. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of the high-singing warblers, the yeah, Blackburnian warbler, yeah. Blackpole, Cape May, yeah. Yeah, and Cape May, and, and part of what, you know, you tune in is like, oh, it's one of those really high-pitched right. things. Right, yeah, it narrows things down a little bit more. Yeah. And then you lower the pitch, <laughs> and you like don't a, have a that. Mouse or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could sound like something, yeah, it's like the wheezy, wheezy, wheezy could start sounding like, you know, a Peter, Peter, Peter or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, my best example of that is uh, brown creeper, the calls of the brown creeper. Mm -hmm. You know, which is a a uh, uh, a vibrating like C, but it's uh, modulated mm -hmm. and and very and very specific. It's it sounds golden crown kinglets makes a similar sound. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and they're high pitched and they're modulated. If you pitch lower the brown creepers call, divide it by three or four. Amazingly, it sounds like the the quirr call of a red-bellied woodpecker. Really? Yeah, <laughs> that's really it's, interesting. It's actually if and if you took a red-bellied woodpecker quirr call, and pitched it up, and pitched it up, you would see that. Well, it's really structured the same, but the pitches are so different. Oh, that's interesting. So I remember going in the woods and and with this device. And when I would hear a red-bellied woodpecker, I'd say, is that a red-bellied woodpecker or is that a brown creeper? <laughs> not, a, not a species pair you would necessarily <laughs> in the to get uh, mistaken, but yeah. there you go. So there are some cases like that and yeah. uh, that are sort of funny, but at least you're hearing it. Exactly. Um, exactly right. But for the most part, you can learn to identify uh, a good many of the species. You know, it's just those confusing, high-pitchy things that don't have really distinctive patterns. Yeah. Um, yeah, because there are a lot of warblers that are that are. It's like, is that just is that another variation of the American Red Star? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? oh my God, yeah, yeah, you don't need that. <laughs> so, how is the Hear Birds Again app an okay. extension of the songbirding? The song, process you did yeah, for song the song finder, song finder. Thank you. Yeah, yes. yeah. Well, uh, as time went on, my partner Herb Seussman was the one who was building the song mm -hmm. finders. I was sort of the person who knew all about the birds and this or that and um he just got tired of building them and our sales were <laughs> our sales were never that great so he finally started saying i'm you know i'm tired of doing this and um that was in the early 2000s or 2010 somewhere in there but we kept it up still for quite a bit longer mm -hmm. and decided really uh, this should be moved to like a mobile phone technology mm -hmm. because then you could improve algorithms. You could do various things yeah. uh, that you couldn't do with a device that's sort of set in concrete. And the right. only way you can change it is to change the, you know, the components that 
that are mm-hmm. in there. Uh, so finally, we plan to quit building them, which happened in 2018. Um, and in the meantime, I ha- had started talking with a programmer, Harold Mills, uh, who was also local and worked at the lab and helped develop their sound analysis software, Raven, uh, for birdsong analysis. And he was interested in, in creating an application that would work on the iPhone or mobile devices, iPhone first, mm-hmm. and um, that would basically do what the song finder did, yeah, uh, which is pitch lower uh, things above like 3,000, 2,500 to 3,000 and go on up and let you do a divide by two or divide by three or divide by four. So we set to work on that. I developed the website and, uh, and made it a nonprofit project. And we got donations, uh, which was sort of successful. Not really. It's been more a labor of love. And mm-hmm. so we developed this app, which we um, launched in December of 2022. Um, so not that long ago. Yeah. And uh, it does what the song finder did. Um, it's while well, the song finder cost like 700 bucks, 750 bucks, I think it was, which left us with a very small profit margin. We had to sell it directly and all this. Mm-hmm. But we decided uh, for the app to just make it free. Like this is not a money making project for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we decided, you know, it's been something I just wanted to, in a way, get it out and hand it off. It's an open source project. Yeah. So anyone can, can get the, the code that we currently have and move forward on it. So we're hoping this will just keep the idea alive, uh, long enough for some other, some, some either, you know, we refine the product ourselves, which we intend to do, or other devices start showing up that are mm-hmm. inexpensive that include a pre-built headset. Right. Cause because for our Hearbirds Again project, you actually have to build a headset. Yeah, I was just going to say that there is a modified headset involved. Can it work yeah. without the headset, or is the headset um, just not? Uh, well, not really. I mean, it works. Yeah. with just the bare iPhone, it's just that you can't locate things. Right. Okay. You know, it'll be workable. Like the magic happens when you put on headphone mm-hmm. that has a mic at each ear. Yeah. Because then you get the time arrival difference at the ears. And the intensity difference, which lets your brain project where the sound is in exactly. 3D environment. Yeah. So the headset for it to function in three-dimensional space uh, has to have mics mounted at each ear. Mm-hmm. And they don't make commercial ones, although there is one that Sennheiser makes that is now no longer uh, manufactured, <laughs> but they're still available on their yeah. on a website. They're, they have noisy sort of hissy mics but it works and so for 50 bucks someone can get that Hmm. and get started with the idea or they can uh the for the head the headset that you put together yourself uh there's a kit available that ends up costing you about 175 Mm dollars um that has all the components and then we have videos that show how to put it together right so not nearly as expensive as the original song sure. finder. Yeah, absolutely. But the advantage of the uh, hand-built headset is that it includes super low noise microphones. Uh, so it's significantly better, theoretically anyway, <laughs> than the song finder was. Although the song finder worked really, really well. You know, and um, 
So some people who own the Song Finder have contacted me and said, should we upgrade to the Hearbirds again? Uh, and I sort of say, well, maybe. <laughs> Until it breaks, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, but the Song Finder works, and yeah. there will be some difference in the, 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 the cleanliness of the signal Mm-hmm. That in in real life translates into you will be able with our with the Hearbirds Again app and this hand built uh, kit. You're using the kit to build it. You'll be more able to hear like on a quiet morning, long things yeah. farther away, because as you increase the volume, you won't get as much hiss yeah. from the electronic components which would then block mm. your hearing of mm. certain bird songs. Yeah, analog versus digital. Yeah, difference. well, yeah. it's also just the quality of the mic. Yeah. You know, it's like the, the Sennheiser headset that you can buy for $50 is, is plugs into your iPhone. It's, you know, has a digital A to D converter in it. It's, but they just use noisy mics. I don't know mm. why, you know, they, but, but it was more for music and other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't made for listening to birds. It seems like there's someone out there that could 3D print or something, uh, a device yeah. that would probably do the job. Um, yeah, I would think. Well, I mean, but with a headset, you do need wires. or You have true. to communicate with your phone. And yeah. ultimately, uh, there, there, there will be headset devices that will work that will use Bluetooth mm-hmm. to communicate so you won't have wires. But right, right. now, the Bluetooth technology doesn't, wouldn't work very well with this. Okay. And there are no Bluetooth headsets that have mics at each ear. Okay. Yeah. There are some headsets that have a mic, but it's usually one mic, and it's usually located on the cable. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you're not going to get binaural no. hearing. So there's nothing I've found out there that has dual mics huh. and that inputs a stereo a, a two-channel It feels like a, a solvable problem, though. Like, the difficult thing would seem to be, like, the software portion. The hardware part seems like you could, yeah, eventually just, down the road, you could get yeah. something that works. Well, yeah. it's just, we just need a little headset with a mic yeah. here and here, and a communicating to the iPhone with the stereo mic signal stereo mic, yeah. going in. You <laughs> have to have that. And then the down-the-road Bluetooth standard, which will have way less... Um, delay so right right now there's like a half a second delay mostly hmm. uh in bluetooth and that can foul things up like you'll see the a bird move its beak before <laughs> and then you'll hear yeah. the sound second, yeah and and then if you're talking or doing other stuff it can get that delay can cause oh, problems yeah. or if you hear part of what a bird's doing but not the high let's say the low end but not the high end yeah then the high end delays Mm-hmm. The low end that you're hearing normally, you would hear, yeah, uh, because, because the headset we recommend is open air, so you're mm-hmm. not blocking your normal hearing. Yeah. So the the uh, the delay factor, of the signal is a problem with Bluetooth, but it's going to be ta- it's going to be reduced. The next standard, which is, I mean, it's already been passed or accepted or whatever. It's just mm-hmm. finding its way into devices, yeah, and stuff. Um, We'll have it's called latency. We'll have a much shorter latency of like yeah. twenty five milliseconds, which would be short Actually enough. Nothing. Yeah, yeah, that that I don't think it would interfere with things. So, what was it like for you the first time you really got everything kind of dialed in correctly on this process? Well, you mean back with the song finder? Either or, one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it was 
great. I mean, I already knew what things would sound like because you can slow them down on a computer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's just getting it to where we could finally plug in with a binaural headset and go out and hear the birds. And it was it was great when we finally prototyped the first device. And, you know, I plugged in the headset and went out. And it's just like, yeah, this... This is birding. Yeah. <laughs> this is birding. I can hear these birds now and hear yeah. them in a way that uh, it makes it much more easy for me to identify. And in fact, made all my work with sound recording that I've done, that I started in the late 1990s. So luckily, I had devices that let me run down all the warblers and everything with the parabola and record them. Mm -hmm. Even though I was using a, uh, the device on my head, and then when I would run them down, I would put a headset over the little mics uh -huh. and then aim the parabola generally in the direction of the bird and then find it mm -hmm. by the loudness. It would, get, it would get loud when I aimed the parabola at it and make all these recordings. But I was recording the actual bird song, but hearing the pitch lowered hmm. version. Um, your ability to locate the birds is not as good as someone with excellent hearing, normal mm -hmm. hearing. But it's serviceable. I mean, you yeah. know, I would know it's, it's over to the right. I would generally know the, the distance. And go over there, but then I would, well, birders, even with good hearing, run into this problem. Is it down low or is it up high? Yeah, or is it facing you or is it facing the other direction? Yeah, yeah. It's, and uh, or sometimes if it's singing from directly behind you, you think it's in front of you. Yeah. Until oh, you yeah. turn your head. Yeah. So these are problems, even someone with normal hearing, the human ability to distinguish something high in a tree versus in the middle of the tree is not very good in the, <laughs> in the, the vertical. Of the species, we're yeah. excellent in the horizontal. Yeah. You know, to know it's to the right or left. We're not so good front and back. Uh, although all it takes is a little turn of the head to know which direction it is, but it's that low down versus high up. So as a recordist, I mean, I definitely had some problems knowing is it low down or high up? So I would, once I got the general direction, I would put the parabola low, and then when the bird would sing, I'd raise the parabola really quick until I heard it get louder. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which works if the song lasts a little while. <laughs> but I was able to find all these birds that I basically was deaf to mm -hmm. were it not for having a device, and I was able to record a tremendous number of birds getting parabolic reflector-type recordings, you know, back in the, um, the late eight, 1980s and early 1990s, uh, when I was mainly toting a parabola, mm -hmm. uh, before I got into soundscape recording, which which I do now, and that's my passion, which is a so, totally different thing. Totally different, yeah. Um, so yeah, um, but it was great when it finally had something that worked that was small enough to mm -hmm. not be a pain, and it didn't have the drawbacks of the heterodyne, yeah, of jumbling the frequency patterns all around and it was like yeah this is workable and this is way better than not hearing the birds is this the product that you were sort of hoping for when you first started exploring or going down this path or do you do you see an even better version in the near future um i only see better well i see um for instance with our current device we have hard stops for the frequency division mm -hmm. one half one third one quarter so we're already on the, ver I wouldn't say it's coming out really soon. I have to talk to Harold, but uh, there's another approach 
called it's it's using a technology called a phase vocoder uh, type of algorithm with continuous division. Mm -hmm. So you go from low to high, you can sweep and be able to tune a bird in. Again, yeah. like I was able to do it. It's almost like your first one. Yeah, yeah like, but without device. the jumble of frequencies. Yeah. So you can just optimize if you're hearing a bird, get it to where you want it really quick. Yeah. Um, another thing we would like to um, enable is a, to give the user a choice of a frequency compression approach, which is a little different. Because, see, the, the division, let's say you have a warbler singing at 8,000, but you need it to be below 3,000 to hear it. Well, if you divide it by two, it's going to drop down That's to four. It won't do it. Yeah. You know, if you, or let's take 9,000, a little easier. Uh, divided by two, it's not far enough. If you divide it by three, it's down to 3,000. But if you're deaf at 3,000, you're not going to hear it. Yeah, you're not going to hear so it. So you have to have it at 4,000 to finally hear it. So mm -hmm. if you're walking through the woods with your setting at two, which is, is a reasonable place to have it set because birds that are frequency lower the least sound pretty really good. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't want to frequency lower those birds too much because they start dropping down so low. You hear them. Yeah, you'll be like whale noises. Yeah, like they get a little too low. <laughs> and um, so you sort of have to, when you're in the woods, flick from one to the other. Still, there's that to get them mm -hmm. all. Um, the compression would be like you take everything from, let's say, four to, four to ten, you squeeze it down and drop mm -hmm. it in pitch so that you're hearing everything, everything from like three to ten, let's say, mm -hmm. all at once, but squeeze down like that would be nearly two octaves span, yeah. three to six and six to twelve. So let's say three to twelve. Uh -huh. If you squeeze it down two octaves and pitch lower it, you're squeezing it down into one octave. Uh -huh. So you'll, you'll hear all of those birds. The only problem is they're all crunched. They're all roughly the same. Yeah. They're crunched into, yeah, there's less. I mean, even if you just hear an individual thing singing, that, let's say that goes like a oh, Peter, like Peter, a Peter, that, yeah, or something, yeah. it'll go. Pretty, pretty. It, you'll get less of a yeah. range of the variation yeah, within yeah. the song. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're taking a bird song and you're squeezing it down, crushing it down a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, but you could hear all the the entire frequency range, you know, on one setting. Mm -hmm. So it may turn into this that the optimal thing for a birder who can't hear over twenty five hundred or or even 2,000, would be to use a compression algorithm as you're walking through the woods so that you're detecting everything in the bird range, which mm -hmm. rarely goes over 10,000. I mean, harmonics right. do, but the, the actual song rarely goes over 10. So you'll become aware of it. And then once you become aware of something, you can break down. Yeah, you can be more specific. And, yeah. and not compress, but just pitch lower. So that you yeah. hear it more the way it actually is in terms of that's the pitch variation. In some way, that's sort of what your brain is doing already. It's that you're just doing it kind of manually. Yeah. Outside your body. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so a compression algorithm. It would be nice to have the phase vocoder continuous shifting by whatever mm -hmm. amount or a compression that is just taking that whole range you're missing 
and shoving it down, compressing it into a narrower range of octaves, musically speaking, mm-hmm. in the between like one to two thousand, let's say, hmm. yeah. or whatever. But but all that variation is squeezed down, <laughs> and then that becomes how you would just sort of like start your walk, and then once you detect something, then you'd go into the phase vocoder and tune it in, yeah. but hear it hear it better. You know, it's not that's cool. It's not bringing back normal hearing, but it's being able to hear uh, these yeah. different birds. So that's that's the main technological shift. You know, mm-hmm. something that would do uh, give give you these different options, and that's where we hope uh, to take hear birds again uh, to where you have those choices very easily implemented. You know, in the algorithm itself. All right, Lang Elliott's new program, uh, Hear Birds Again, is available. It's a free app. Please check it out wherever you can find apps. He's got an article about all of it to the whole story in the July 2023 issue of Birding Magazine. Members can check that out. Uh, it'll be coming to their mailboxes or in their inboxes, however you decide to get the magazine. Um, Lang, thanks so much. Congratulations on this new device. This is really cool. And um, thank you for your time. Well, thank you, Nate. It's been a pleasure. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, as you probably know if you are a regular listener, including our fantastic magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, Beauty of Books, and more. You can find out how to do that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs to make this week to Justin Fucart of Austin, Texas, Dan Gardeke of Cape Nettick, Maine, Teresa Johnston of Dolores, Colorado, Erica Kent and family of Redwood City, California, and Daniel Shields and family of Lexington, Kentucky, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. One more thing you can do to help the podcast that doesn't cost a dime is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. Your ratings help get us in front of more people, and we certainly appreciate that. Technical production is by John Lowry, who wants to remind folks during this holiday week that black cat birds are not meant to explode, but he'd suggest keeping your fingers clear regardless. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon, who notes that the Clark's firecracker is what happens when you stuff a cherry bomb in a tree cavity with a bunch of pine nuts. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. Everyone wants the visual spectacle of fireworks without the sounds, and I get that. But if you want the sounds without the visual element, I'd suggest heading over to your local HEB parking lot and finding a flock of great-tailed grackles. Bonus points if you play Lee Greenwood from your car stereo while doing it. It's a very, very patriotic experience. Questions, comments can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. Till next time.